Welcome to All the Worlds a Stage, the dementia-friendly podcast from Capital Theatres. My name is Willie Gilder and I live with Alzheimer's disease I was diagnosed a couple of years ago. This is the last in this series of podcasts. We hope you've enjoyed meeting some of the people that make the dementia-friendly community here at Festival Theatre tick along. Now, dementia is primarily a disease of older age. Our very special guest this week is a writer whose best-known fictional character, John Rebus, has hung up his handcuffs and retired. I'm delighted to welcome Sir Ian Rankin. You're not normally known as Sir Ian Rankin, are you, Ian? Well, I've not had the sword put on my shoulder yet. That's happening in June. But you're, you're welcome to call me Sir Ian Rankin, if you like. <laughs> Does it matter to you whether people use the, the title? I got an upgrade in Dublin a while ago in my hotel room. So uh, that's the only benefit so far I can make, uh, apart from getting ribbed by all my friends in the pub. I quite like it. I like puzzles and gameplay and wordplay and stuff. And Sir Ian Rankin is an acrostic or an acronym because S-I-R, Sir Ian Rankin makes Sir. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. The sort right. of stuff that keeps your brain active. Been interested in puzzles, word puzzles. They always say that to stave off dementia, you should try things like word puzzles. You've made a, a very conscious decision to, to age your lead character. I mean, you could have kept him at kind of in his mid-40s or however old he, he was when you first introduced him. Why have you done that? Um, there were various reasons. I guess one reason was that I didn't suspect I would still be writing about him so long after I started the series. So I didn't realise that retirement was going to become an issue. Um, but also I wanted to write about the way that Scotland, Edinburgh and the UK were changing socially, politically, culturally, economically. Well, how can you do that? How can the world around change if your main character is set in aspic, as it were, almost like a museum piece? So I thought, OK, he will age. And um, then I got the dreaded phone call from a cop that I knew. And he said, how old is your guy? And I said, I don't know, 58, 59, why? He said he's got to retire at 60. That is the mandatory retirement age for detectives. Uniform in Scotland, it was 55 at that time. Detectives, it was 60. So I had to break the news to my publisher in London that the next book would be the last book. And I thought it would be. That was Exit Music, which was published quite a long time ago now. And I thought that was the end of Rebus because he could no longer function as a police officer. But he, uh, he had other plans for me. He had other plans for you. Yeah, he wouldn't, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't leave my head. He just stuck around in a little compartment inside my head, waiting to be released. So how much is he in charge of you or you in charge of him? I don't know. It's kind of hard to tell sometimes. I know that the, the general public, the reading public, the fans of the books are much more interested in his health than mine. So suddenly when he gets COPD, emphysema as we used to call it in old money, and he has trouble climbing stairs and everything else, he can't chase suspects down the street anymore, he's got to give up smoking, which has always been one of his passions and hobbies, he's got to cut back on the booze, he's got to change his diet, all of that stuff. Um, They were very worried. And the reason he got COPD was two things. One is my wife said, look, this guy's had a lot of luck health-wise in his life when you take into account his lifestyle. Surely something must catch up with him. And she sat me down with a friend of hers who's a GP, and the GP said to me, well, he, he would obviously have COPD. From all the smoking in particular? From the smoking, the lifestyle and everything else, you know. And I went, oh, COPD actually has the word cop in it. <laughs> uh, so I quite liked that. So I thought, okay, I'll give him COPD. 
Um, and so, you know, he's had to, he used to live two stories up in a tenement in Edinburgh, and now he's moved into a ground floor flat because he can't manage stairs anymore. He has to carry an inhaler around with him. Uh, that's as far as I've gone with him so far. But, you know, COPD, you can control it to a certain extent, but you don't get better from it. And so without each new book, he's aged a year or two. So I've got to take that into account, that his health will not be what it was when I last wrote about him, which keeps him interesting to me keeps me interested in him because he's not the same character he was two books ago or ten books ago. Um, and the fact that he's no longer a cop gives me a challenge because how do I inveigle him into a police investigation? These are whodunits. These are police procedurals. Well, if he's not a cop, how in, in, how in God's name can he become involved in a police inquiry? I'll have some fun with that as well because that, that is, presents me with more challenges. Your last book, uh, somebody makes a bit of a jibe about him losing his memory that he might have dementia and he reacts quite quite angrily about that. He's not happy about that idea at all, is he? No, he's not, because he carries around with him all the cases he's worked on, solved and unsolved. And I guess he's very worried that if his memory does start to go, he will lose those cases. He's, he's taken them. When he retired, he actually sneaked all these case notes out of the police station and he keeps them in a spare bedroom in his flat. And he thinks that at one point, perhaps, new information will arrive and he can crack the unsolved case. Harder to do if you're forgetting what goes on. But I think like many of us, what he finds is he can remember the long past quite clearly. It's what he did yesterday that's a problem. Are you working out kind of your own thoughts about getting older as you're, as you're writing? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I've always used him as, a, as a, a sounding board. He's a few years older than me and he always has been and always will be. So I'm sort of approaching, I'm, I'm learning about what's going to happen to me through watching him. And as the great poet Leonard Cohen once said, I ache in the places where I used to play. So, you know, the eyes don't work as well anymore, the hearing doesn't work, the knees don't work. All of that, as I get older, has become an issue. Let's not get into the prostate. <laughs> um, but, you know, and so I give a lot of that stuff to Rebus as a way of thinking about how I'm going to deal with it when the time comes. Rebus is taking um, great comfort in Brillo, the dog. It's lovely that he's got a dog. And he's only got a dog because I called our fairly recent book Even Dogs in the Wild, which was really predicated on the, the theme that human beings sometimes treat each other and their own offspring worse than animals in the wild do. We, you know, child abuse, for example. That's what crops up in the book. And I thought, OK, I'm going to call it Even Dogs in the Wild, which is a song by a band associates, and there's a line in it, Even Dogs in the Wild could do better than this. And... I thought, oh, well, I'll have a dog in the book. And it's a stray dog that Rebus takes home with him. Thinking, I was thinking, well, eventually he'll get rid of the dog. But nobody wants the dog. So he's landed with it. Started writing the next book and my wife said, how's, how's Brillo the dog? And I went, oh, no, I forgot. He's got a dog. I've got to bring the dog back into the book. But it's terrific because it takes him out, gets him walking. During lockdown, it was problematic, of course. But you were allowed to go out and exercise your animal. He has got a shared drying green in his tenement that he could at least take Brillo out into. But it gets him out. It gets him out of the house. It stops him hanging around all day in the pub because he's never had close friends really and his family have disappeared down the years his brother is deceased he's long divorced he sort of fell out of touch with his daughter until fairly recently although she's back in his life so Brillo gives him friendship I can't quite picture Brillo well he's kind of wiry and terrier like and he is a he that's about as much as I can I, sometimes I see dogs in the meadows in Edinburgh I think yeah that's Brillo um, a bit of a Heinz 57 varieties, not, you know, I mean, a dog that's a bit of this and a bit of that. Not big dog, smallish dog. And, and yeah, Rebus enjoys taking Brillo out and just getting Brillo off the lead and letting him go. So as you've written all of these Rebus books, so you have different clues as to his back 
background and he served time in the army and, as you say, his relationship with his daughter. Do you have to keep very careful track of all of these things and does that ever go wrong? Oh, it goes wrong. Um, I've been lucky that there are usually people who put me right, either a good editor, a good proofreader, my wife, who is my first reader, and she'll say, hang on a minute, wasn't she called this in a previous book? Yeah, there are mistakes. I mean, there's somebody, one of the characters in the early books goes from being a detective constable to a detective sergeant about a detective constable again, because I didn't keep records of all of that. I just kept it in my head. Mostly I keep the plots in my head, which gets harder as you get older. But there have been fans who've written up sort of grids of all the characters in the books and what roles they play and that's kept me straight for a while although that person has kind of vanished I don't know what happened to them but for years they'd written up a kind of rebus bible of all the characters and whether they were alive or dead at the end of the book and physical descriptions of them so that I could look back and see what Siobhan Clark, the detective inspector in the books looks like or Malcolm Fox who's another cop in the books rebus himself is he sees internal affairs he, he's the guy who investigates the bad cops you're not supposed to like him really um, and he's a bit of a desk jockey he's much happier with a pen in his hand than, than chasing suspects and villains I, I sneakily think he's more like me than Rebus is if you put Fox and Siobhan Clark in a blender you would get something approximating me what you do get in the books is an extraordinary sense of place I mean you're Edinburgh lives and breathes and and as you say it 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 keeps up to date so uh, you know in your leith walk you have the tram works you could have used a fictional place yeah and i, I, I almost wish i had i mean that pre, the, the last book heart full of headstones i was writing the first draft i decided some bad stuff would have happened uh, in a tenement flat on constitution street in leith having written the first draft i then went down to constitution street in leith and found it was all dug up for the tram works there was no physical way hardly a pedestrian could get down it never mind a vehicle i thought okay this is making a road for your own backy and if there's something happened in this flat and the police have to arrive and uh, their vans and their cars and everything where can they park they can't get access here etc etc you'd have to describe all this in a way that doesn't bore the reader to tears why don't you just make up a fictional street Early on in the series, I did use a lot of fictional streets. There were fictional streets, fictional police stations, and fictional pubs. But I thought, why am I making it hard? If you use the real city as much as possible, then you convince the reader that this stuff could be happening. So you get that suspension of disbelief in the reader. They know this is a real city. They know that's a real police station. So maybe this stuff is actually happening and they become much more involved. Of course, the real city has a way of fighting back. So Rebus used to work at St. Leonard's Police Station, a real cop shop. And then I was told that St. Leonard's was going to wind up its detective division. There'd be no CID there, so I had to move Rebus. My publisher said, why? I said, well, because in real life, that's what would happen. So all of that, you've got to take on board. But I like using the real city. I like introducing people to bits of Edinburgh and stories about Edinburgh that they might not otherwise know. I've got this huge map of Edinburgh up on my wall, and I'll just stare at it and go, oh, I've not used that street. Or, you know, oh, didn't something happen there 100 years ago? Maybe I could use that as material. Because you're not from Edinburgh originally. You're a fifer, isn't you? I'm I'm from 30 miles north. Carden Den, which was a mining town, mining village when I grew up um, in the 60s, early 70s. Um, parents, you know, it was working class. It was a terrorist Scottish Special Houses Association house, which is like a council house. Parents left school at 14, 15. Um, I had two big sisters, neither of whom went to further education. So I was the kind of black sheep of the family in some ways. 
studying at Edinburgh University, especially studying literature. Um, I think my parents thought you go to university to get a trade. What kind of trade are you going to get studying English? And, you know, I was just passionate about books and reading and, and writing and just wanted to be paid money, as you were at that time as a student, to sit and read books for three or four years. What a great life. Things have changed now. But Edinburgh, I mean, it seems to me that you're in love with Edinburgh. Mm, I'm a little bit like Rebus. It's a love-hate relationship. I mean, there's a lot about Edinburgh that on a day-to-day basis annoys me as much as it annoys anybody else who lives in the city or who travels in and out of the city. Road works, traffic jams, etc., etc. If you want to go up and down the high street in summer, it can be hugely busy with tourists. So you feel that you've kind of lost your city for a few months of the year. Um, but it's a manageable size. I like the fact that you can walk almost everywhere. Um, I'm now at an age where I've got my bus pass. I finally got my bus pass. I get free bus travelling. In fact, used it yesterday for the very first time because I hit 60 during lockdown, which meant I never did pick up my bus pass that I was meant to do because the libraries where you got your bus pass from were closed. Anyway... So yeah, all of that. So I'm going to start exploring Edinburgh by bus and tram, because trams are free also if you've got the Edinburgh bus pass. Is there a story involving Edinburgh that you would really want people to know about? Um, Well, there's links in a chain. I mean, a lot of people know that Robert Louis Stevenson grew up in Edinburgh. A lot of people know that Robert Louis Stevenson wrote Jekyll and Hyde. They don't always know that Jekyll and Hyde was in part based on a real Edinburgh character called Deacon William Brodie, who was gentleman by day and thief by night. He was a member of society, he was a carpenter, he would come and fit your locks to your home, but then he would also come back at dead of night with his gang and steal from you. He was eventually arrested and hanged on a scaffold that he had built, because he was a carpenter. In Robert Louis Stevenson's childhood home was a wardrobe that had been made by Deacon William Brodie. And Stevenson was a sickly child and his nursemaid, Cummy, would tell him the story of this guy who was good and evil in the same person. Flash forward and Deacon Brodie becomes an ancestor of Miss Jean Brodie. Miss Jean Brodie tells us that her, you know, you go back far enough in time, her great-great-great-grandfather was this guy, William Brodie, who was a gentleman. She doesn't say he was also a thief and was hanged. That connective tissue takes you to the fact that Edinburgh always has been this dual city, the city of good and evil, the city of haves and have-nots, the city that is light and cultured on the surface, but much darker underneath. And that's the city that I want to explore in my books. So, in some ways, being at university and studying the prime Miss Jean Brodie took me to... William Brodie, which took me to Stevenson, which took me to Jekyll and Hyde, which made me turn into a crime writer. Good gracious. <laughs> that is an incredible link, isn't it? And you can go to the Writers Museum in Lady Stairs Close in Edinburgh, and if you go to the Robert Louis Stevenson room, there is the wardrobe. And if you ask very nicely, they might unlock it for you. Your, your villain, Big Jer Cafferty, I never know whether you like him or not. Well, he has charisma. This is the thing with, with monsters in books, monsters in fairy tales, in folk tales onwards, is they, they often have charisma. Hannibal Lecter is a much more interesting character than Clarice Starling. And we're often attracted to the monster, we're attracted to the devil. The devil is a much more interesting character in Paradise Lost uh, than anybody else. It's always been the way of it. Caffert has always been that devil who sits on Rebus's shoulder and tries to persuade him to push things just a bit further, to break the rules a bit more, to cross the line and not cross back again. So he's the dark side of Rebus's ego? Yeah, he is. Or he's, you know, the Mr Hyde is quite a good comparison, I think, that he's almost what Rebus could have become. And he sits there and he's, he sits in his penthouse apartment. He used to control Edinburgh, he used to control the drugs and the violence and the money lending and everything else. But now he is older. Um, he's not as physically 
threatening as he used to be. He doesn't have physical heft. The way that Rebus used to be able to intimidate people with his size and his aggression, uh, Cafferty doesn't, can't do that so much. So he feels that the reputation he had is slipping away from him. And the later books in the series, the retirement books, are really about men of a certain age who are trying to make sense of the rapidly changing world around them and trying to work out if they still have a role to play and, and does the world still pay attention to them. I think what Rebus has noticed is people don't notice him anymore and he can't get past the front desk of a police station anymore. And when he goes to a crime scene, they go, sorry, sir, you can't get past this cordon. And, and Cafferty's dealing with similar kind of things. He's dealing with the fact that younger, more venal, hungrier villains are arriving on the scene and they all want what he's had. Now, you haven't just written crime novels, you've written all sorts of things, science fiction, graphic novel even. We're looking at doing some graphic novel work here with Capital Theatres, uh, using people with dementia as, as our narrators. How did you find writing a graphic novel? It was a challenge, but I grew up with comics. I mean, when I grew up, there weren't well, what many... What was your favourite comic? Uh, well, I liked all the DC Thompson ones, the ones that came out of Dundee, the Dandy, the Beano, the Victor, the Hotspur, Commando comics. And then eventually I moved into American comics like Batman and Superman. But when I was a kid, I tried drawing comics. I mean, they were, my parents were not great readers, but I was allowed to indulge. Comics were affordable literacy, and I could just about afford them on my pocket money. But that love of comics, you know, stayed with me. And when 2000 AD started, the home of Judge Dredd, amongst other characters, I was reading that. Into my mid to late 20s, I was still reading comics. And then one day, DC Comics in America got in touch and said, oh, we've seen some of the interviews you've done. You're a big fan of comics. Have you ever thought about writing a comic? And I said, what kept you? You know, this is, this is 40 years too late almost. So uh, I pitched him some ideas, and the one he liked was for a character called Hellblazer, John Constantine, who's part of their universe. Uh, and it was a 200-page standalone graphic novel. And then my son, who was, I don't know how old he was when it came out, 13 maybe, sat and read it. He sat on the stairs and read it, and it took him half an hour to read it. I thought, it took me months to, <laughs> months to write that. And you've read it in half an hour. And, it, and his, his critique was, don't give up the day job, Dad. <laughs> Are your family your fiercest critics? My wife is a very good reader. She's always my first reader. Before my agent, before my editor, before anybody, I show it to my wife. Not the first draft. The first draft is very rough and baggy. That's my own draft. My wife might see the second or third draft, and I'll print it out, old style. She'll sit with the A4 sheets, and she'll go through it, and she'll write in the margins. That's a terrifying time in my life. Because until then, you've written a perfect book. It's Schrodinger's Cat. Until you show it to anybody, it is the perfect manifestation of everything you want to say about the world. When you send it out into the world, you realize it's flawed. Yet again, you fail to write the perfect book, so you need to start again. But she'll write, and she'll write in the margin things like, um, show, don't tell, you're doing too much telling here, you're just dumping information on the reader, try and find a way of making that more subtle. Why is Rebus not taking Brillo for a walk today? Or, uh, you know, little stuff, big stuff. Uh, and that's very, very valuable to me. And so actually gets the book then gets tweaked before it goes to my agent or my publisher. So then I have an argument with them because if they want me to change anything, I say, well, it's already been edited. So I'm very, I'm very lucky that my wife is a very good, she reads a lot. She reads more than I do. And she reads a lot of crime fiction. So she's a very good editor. And she doesn't cost me anything. <laughs> Does, um, does creating work come easily to you? Um, I don't think it gets any easier. It gets harder as you get older, I think, which is frustrating. But when I was, you know, when I was a kid, I was trying to do cartoons, strip cartoons. I was writing song lyrics for non-existent bands. I was, trying, I was writing poetry eventually. The song lyrics for my band became poems. And 
But it doesn't get easier. I thought it would. I thought the more you write, the easier it will get. It's like stripping a car engine and putting it back together again. Once you've done enough car engines, you can do it blindfold. It's not like that with writing for various reasons. You want each new book to be better than a book before. Well, that's quite tough when you've written 30-odd books. Um, you don't want to bore yourself or the reader. You don't want to repeat yourself too much, if at all. You've got all these younger writers who are snapping at your heels or your knees or further up uh, because they want the sales that you've got, they want the publicity you've got, they want the prizes you've got. So you're always challenging yourself to write a better and a better book. So yeah, I like that. You know, doing a libretto for an opera or trying to write some lyrics for a band, it's all interesting to me because it makes me use different parts of my brain in different ways. Music's important to you, isn't it? Well, like all writers that I know, I'd much rather be a rock star. Than a, than a writer, you know, but I never, I was in a punk band when I was 18, 19, and we went absolutely nowhere. And then after that, I just became a listener. I became someone who went to concerts and bought a lot of albums. And I, I did, after I left university, work for a couple of years at a music magazine, a music and hi-fi equipment magazine in London. And I've always had an interest in the equipment, and I've always had an interest in listening to the music. And then a few years ago, I was asked if I would join a band as the vocalist, a band of men in their 50s who should know better. Uh, but then COVID came along and pretty much did for us. Do, do you put music on when you're writing? Uh, instrumental music, yeah. Yeah, it creates a nice little bubble. It just shuts out the real world. You always work music into your Rebus books. Well, that's part of being a frustrated rock star, you know, and it's a shorthand way of introducing you to character. You can find out quite a lot about Rebus if you never never read one of my books by the fact you'll sit down at night and put on a Leonard Cohen album and pour a glass of whiskey. You go, OK, I kind of know the person you are now. I know the kind of age you are, I know what your sort of state of your brain is, the state of your kind of your mentality. You would listen to Leonard Cohen or the Rolling Stones. And it, you know what? The nice thing is it's meant that people in the music industry have become fans of the Rebus books. So I get to go to gigs and go backstage and meet all these people. Oh, I know. so glad you mentioned Rolling Stones. They, they, they helped me a lot deal with my, uh, my particular diagnosis. This um, dementia-friendly community, we're very dedicated, I think, to the notion that creativity is important to people, that dancing or listening to music or making music is, is, is important. Do you share that view? Yeah, and I, I, I mean, I've got a son who's got severe special needs, um, dementia not being one of them as yet. But I, I'm very interested in theatres making themselves open to audiences who normally wouldn't get access. So noisy performances where you don't mind people getting up and walking about and stuff and maybe making a noise and whooping and yelling or whatever or just shouting out loud or asking questions out loud of the cast. I, I just I think that's great. And my wife and I have actually helped um, theatres to put those performances on. But I think it needs to go further. I think we need um, people to be putting things like dementia front and centre of the work they're making. Plays, songs... Um, TV shows, films that actually feature dementia and other disabilities. And then using people that have got special needs actually in the cast would be the next step from that. When that happens, it tends to be in very stereotype ways. I mean, when you see dementia portrayed, it's nearly always somebody talking about forgetfulness. Yeah. But nothing else. It's sort of rather two-dimensional, it seems to yeah, me. Yeah, so, so we need more. We need more work. And we need people who've deeply researched this subject or know what they're talking about. I mean, early on in the Rebus series, when I found that my son was not going to walk, I put Rebus's daughter in a wheelchair for a couple of books. And that was just a way of dealing with it. She's in a, some, a car hits her and she's put in a wheelchair. And that was just a way, I, I thought, well, if I'm dealing with this, you're going to deal with it too. Uh, and so it was a way for me to deal with that was to give it to Rebus, channel it to him. I didn't go any further with it. Eventually, I felt a bit bad for her and him and I, I, she, she recovered and was able to walk again. Uh, but for the couple of years, I needed that. 
I needed him to be thinking about dealing with a family member who has no mobility. Um, and that helped me to deal with it, I think. So I've always used Rebus as a bit of a, a punch bag. He saved me a fortune in psychoanalyst fees, I think, down the years. So now here we have John Rebus coping with his COPD, taking Brill over a walk, wondering what his role in life is. What does the future hold for him? Um, I don't know. I mean, this is my year off. This is my sabbatical year. So I'm not writing a book this year. I don't have to think too hard about it. So it's, uh, that's a blessing that I can take a year off and just wait for my subconscious to tell me what Rebus wants to do next. And how will that work? Will you, will you dream it? or uh, Panic is, is a good motivator. So there'll be, you know, I've got a book contract and a contract will state, for example, that the book has to be delivered by June 2024. So by September 2023, I'll be starting to think, ooh, I better come up with an idea. And by January, the panic will have set in and then the idea will come. The idea will come. And now that I'm a successful writer, I can do something that most writers can't do, which is I go away to St. Lucia in January with my wife. This has happened a couple of times recently. And that's where I get the idea. Just sitting, staring at the sea, thinking about nothing, emptying your head, far away from Edinburgh. You go, well, hang on a minute. What if that happened? What if this happened? So Heartful of Headstones, the, the latest Rebus novel, was completely plotted in St. Lucia. And then I came back to cold, dreary Edinburgh, late January, early February, and just wrote the book in about six weeks, having plotted it out. Now, that is, that is a great tip for a writer, but not everybody can go to St. Lucia for a couple of weeks and get ideas for books. For any aspiring writers out there, what would you be saying to people? The thing, nice thing about writing is, number one, you can start at any age. So you don't have to have started young. P.D. James was in her 40s before she started putting pen to paper. Other writers have started in their 60s and 70s and become successful in their 80s. Diana Athill, I think, was in her 80s or 90s when she started to get properly published and become successful. So that's great. It's not like being a pop star. You know, you can't imagine starting a pop career in your 50s or 60s or 70s, but you can start your writing career. There are things to do. You just, you've got to write. You've got to get the writing muscle going. So try and write something every day. If it's keeping a diary, if it's keeping a journal, if it's just writing a few lines. Have your antennae going so you're always open to hearing conversations and snippets of conversations and studying people because that might be a character in your story or whatever. Find out what kind of writing you want to do. Do you want to do poetry? Do you want to do song lyrics? Do you want to do drama? Do you want to do prose, non-fiction? Um, whatever interests you, whatever grabs you. You can then go a stage further and start showing it to people. The biggest step you'll ever take is showing it to somebody. So make sure it's someone you trust. A loved one, somebody who's a writer themselves or trying to be a writer. There are lots of writing groups out there you can approach, of course. You can put your stuff online, anonymously or not, and people will give you feedback. But I would say start. Just give it a go, because everybody, as the cliche goes, has a story to tell. Ian Rankin, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. And now for the Capital Theatre's shipping forecast, issued by the box office as of 1800 hours GMT. The general synopsis for Edinburgh Fringe 2023. There are warnings of clowns with squeaky noses and annoying hair on Royal Mile, Grass Market, North Bridge, South Bridge, and in my lady's chamber. That's a new Pleasance venue, I think. Navigate carefully to avoid unwanted flyering. Accommodation availability poor and limited to box rooms only at weekends. 
Toilet queues six miles, rising to nine miles on Friday evenings. Chances of unexpected drizzle high, rising to very high at pub closing times. 1,007, falling. Bin fires, burnt sausages and barbecues reaching critical levels in Inverleith Park, Holyrood Park, Loch End Park, the Meadows and becoming downright ridiculous on Leith Links. Visibility poor, becoming hazy in areas of increased inebriation. Seagulls flocking westerly, turning southwesterly four to five over Leith docks. Risk of getting pooed on high, becoming very high around areas of spilt poutine. Chances of hot dog theft moderate four to five and doubling one eight double o on August the thirty first. Silent discos veering westerly to southwesterly along the Royal Mile, Forest Road, Northbridge, and pretty much anywhere you need to walk. Irritation levels high, becoming very high by final week of August. Volume high, turning deafening at ABBA's greatest hits. And that concludes the Capital Theatre shipping forecast issued by the box office as of 1800 hours GMT. Thank you for listening to the last episode in this series of All the World's a Stage. Today we heard from novelist, philanthropist and wannabe rock star Sir Ian Ranking speaking about his love of comics, music and St Lucia and the challenges of writing an ageing Inspector Rebus while ageing <coughs> ever so slightly himself. Be sure to check out Sir Ian's latest Rebus novel, A Heart Full of Headstones, and while you're at it, why not seek out his lesser-known comic, libretto and graphic novel creations? I know I'm going to. He was in conversation with Willie Gilder, our presenter of All the World's a Stage. The show's researcher was Anne Burnett, and the producer and editor, myself, Alex Howard. For more information about the dementia-friendly programme at Capital Theatres, consult our in-house magazine, Dementia Arts, or give me a call on 0131 622 8102. We're always happy to hear more stories and meet new people. So thank you, listener, for joining us on this little whistle-stop adventure of Edinburgh's dementia-friendly community showcasing some of the best projects, voices, creations and ideas around. Thank you too to all our guests across the series. Edith Donnelly, Ian Lawrence, Alan Midwinter, Sylvia Ruse and of course Sir Ian Rankin. As well as Capital Theatre staff members Pablo Roberts, Graham Wraith, Gus Harrower and Kim McKenna. We hope to be back with a second series of All the Worlds a Stage, but until then you can catch up with the entire series on Spotify, CD or wherever you get your podcasts. Let this, for now then, be adieu. Until next time, have a peaceful night. <laughs>